For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Planets, stars, distant galaxies, nebula, meteors, comets, and everything in between. This is Good Heavens, a podcast about the cosmos and the glory of God. Beginning March 26th, just after sunset, you will be able to see a wondrous planetary alignment that will include the crescent moon. This alignment will feature the planets of Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, Uranus, and Mars. If you have a small pair of binoculars or a telescope, you'll be able to locate Uranus just about two degrees up from Venus. The tip of your pinky held at arm's length is about one degree of sky. Uranus will appear at a magnitude of approximately 5.8. Now, with magnitudes, the higher the number, the lower the actual brightness of the object is. Jupiter, for example, will be shining at negative 2.1, while you'll see Venus as the brightest of all the planets at negative 4.0. Mars will shine in all its vermilion glory at 0.9 magnitude within the constellation of Taurus the Bull. As you trace the planet's positions from Mercury and Jupiter at the horizon arcing back eastward to Venus, then Uranus and Mars, you'll be looking along the ecliptic, the path of motion the planets follow in the sky, which is precisely the same path the Sun follows in its apparent motion during the day. All the planets mentioned here will be visible beginning March 26th until March 29th when Mercury disappears with the Sun at sunset. If you were to ask a secular astronomer what all this means, he might tell you it's just how the universe works, or that you're merely looking at planets along the ecliptic, or that it's all just a happenstance arrangement of matter and energy. If you were to ask an astrologer what it all means, they might try to tell you that the planetary alignments are suggesting what your future holds. Mars is in Taurus, they'll say, so be careful if you're a Taurus, for conflict is coming. Astrologers will tell you things of this nature which have absolutely no basis in reality. The stars do not tell us anything about our personalities or our futures. So what is the biblical answer to what we are seeing in these lovely planetary alignments? What does it all mean? First, we know that the Bible tells us that all things in the heavens and on earth were made through Jesus and for Jesus. See Genesis 1, John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. Second, the scriptures tell us that the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the skies proclaim his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. See Psalm 19. 
This is a most fascinating and beauteous thing. The heavens are the result of God speaking creation into existence. Quote, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the stars by the word of his mouth. End quote. We read that in Psalm 33, 6. So such an alignment of planets is pouring forth a silent speech and revealing knowledge of God's glory to us. God's glory is what Paul tells us in Colossians, that everything has been made in the cosmos through and for the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word cosmos means arrangement. It is the root word from which we get cosmetics. The heavens then are a divine poema, a luminous celestial arrangement created by God, speaking them into existence, not out of any pre-existing matter or energy. The heavens are continuously and unceasingly pouring forth speech and knowledge day and night. They are reminding us, they are telling us of God's glory, of his power, of his faithfulness, his holiness, and that our God is a consuming fire. God has so arranged the cosmos that we can know in advance when these beautiful alignments are going to occur. The heavens function according to God's fixed order. Modern scientists of the heavens might call this fixed order the laws of physics or the laws of the universe. But because of our inherent sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. Many scientists who are not believers try to explain away the universe as the phantasmal fruit of mysterious mathematics and impersonal forces, blindly shaping matter and energy without inherent purpose or plan. Man's rebellious imagination now attributes godlike properties to numbers, equations, formulae, forces, and even other universes. Where God once was now exists the local habitations and names of scientific materialism. And as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them into shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. Forces now are ultimately responsible for the universe. Physical laws are granted unlimited causal properties. But forces and laws have no ability to create or cause anything. They are merely descriptions of our observation of the universe not entities capable of creating or sustaining a universe. But culturally speaking, we now accept almost without question the alleged superiority of scientific explanations over and against a theological understanding of creation. In Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, Hippolyta, the daughter of Mars in Greek mythology, seems to explain quite aptly our modern love affair with scientific explanations for the physical cosmos. But all the story of the night told over, and all their minds transfigured so together, more witnesseth than fancies images, and grows to something of great constancy, but however so strange and admirable. Scientific materialism and all its attendant explanations for what the universe is made of and how it behaves have indeed become a strange and admirable constancy in our time. But is it all really true? The story of night that we are repeatedly told excludes God at every turn. Particles with strange-sounding names mysteriously come together in a primordial cosmic soup, so far and away removed in time from our everyday experiences, it might as well be science fiction. 
The first hydrogen-helium stars enigmatically coalesce and then completely disappear. Heavier stars form somehow, then galaxies swirl themselves together, etc. Read any summary of the origin of the universe and ask yourself how anyone knows this otherworldly sequence of events really happened. But when you have the collective scientific mind so transfigured together, a host of cosmologists, astronomers, and astrophysicists consorting together from their high towers and observatories, telling us repeatedly that God has nothing to do with the night sky, for we have the math and the right probability theorems to prove it, creates the impression on the general public that it's all science-backed, indelible truth. But how would a secular scientist define God? What sort of working scientific definition of God would they offer? How would they test for God's existence? What exactly are they looking for? Science is in no position to dictate whether or not God exists, for God is not finally a scientific hypothesis. Yet even when secular scientists are trying their best to do away with God as an explanation for the universe's existence, they actually end up demonstrating precisely what the Bible says about God and our unbelief. Take the concept of physical laws of the universe, for example. The idea of physical laws comes directly from monotheism, as theoretical physicist Paul Davies explains. Quote, the very notion of physical law has its origins in theology. The idea of absolute, universal, perfect, immutable laws comes straight out of monotheism, which was the dominant influence in Europe at the time science as we know it was being formulated by Isaac Newton and his contemporaries. Just as classical Christianity presents God as upholding the natural order from beyond the universe, so physicists envisage their laws as inhabiting an abstract transcendent realm of perfect mathematical relationships. End quote. But as an agnostic atheist, Davies does not believe in God and thinks the idea of physical laws borrowed from monotheistic Christianity is outdated and needs to go. Davies suggests, quote, I propose instead that the laws are more like computer software, programs being run on the great cosmic computer. They emerge with the universe at the Big Bang and are inherent in it, not stamped on it from without like a maker's mark, end quote. But Davies' ideas do not do away with God by any means. If anything, his comments only solidify the obvious fact that the universe is indeed designed and has the hallmark of God's stamp upon it. Computers and software require computer engineers and software designers who can write code and arrange programming. Here, then, is a remarkable thing. For all the knowledge modern science has given us about the composition and arrangement of the physical universe we inhabit, secular science has no idea what the universe actually is. Now that seems like a rather bold and remarkable statement, but when you think about it, it is true. Some might tell us that the universe just is, or that it's the unintentional byproduct of forces beyond our full ability to understand, but no secular scientist has ever conceded that the universe is the handiwork of God. Science might know a lot about what the universe is made of, absolutely. We can discover the laws which describe the universe, 
But simply having a knowledge of the elements and the laws of the universe provides no explanation for what the universe really is or why it even exists in the first place. From a biblical standpoint, then, I want to suggest that the physical universe is to unbelievers a parable. What do I mean? In Mark's Gospel, we read that Jesus often taught in parables, quote, and he was teaching them many things in parables, end quote, from Mark 4.2. Jesus told his disciples, quote, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but for those who are outside, everything comes in parables, end quote. That's from Mark 4.11. Jesus asked the crowd, quote, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? End quote. That comes from Mark 4.30. Note there what Jesus said again. How shall we picture the kingdom of God? What created things can we liken to the kingdom of God? What are some visual examples of what the kingdom of God is like? So from the largest stars in the universe to the tiniest seeds on earth, everything in the heavens and on earth created by Jesus provides us with kingdom parables. Mark summed up Jesus' teaching by reiterating, quote, And with many such parables he was speaking the word to them, so far as they were able to understand it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples, end quote. That comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 33 and 34. From this perspective, then, for those on the outside of the Christian faith, everything in the heavens and on earth is a parable. As Jesus said himself to his disciples, quoting from Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, the reason for the parables is, quote, while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and it would be forgiven them. End quote. Unbelieving eyes may then see the stars and planets, but not perceive what they really are. Unbelieving ears may hear the words of Christ, but not finally understand them. Now, this does not mean that parables themselves are the cause of unbelief, but rather parables reveal unbelief. Take the planetary alignment that's happening at the end of the month. Scripture tells us it reveals God's invisible attributes, his power and his glory. It also reveals unbelief, as those who are not known of Christ will suppress that knowledge of what the heavens reveal and deny God had anything to do with him. Yet it remains a curious fact that secular scientists will still tell you that the stars and planets and every other entity in the universe obey certain fixed laws that we mentioned earlier. But now if you think about it, obedience is something characteristic of living things, especially people. Planets and stars are not sentient agents who give heed to exhortations and imperatives. Like physical laws, what physicists mean by obedience is actually also a borrowed biblical concept. Though the sun, moon, and stars are not finally living things, yet because they were created by God's voice, they certainly do obey God's voice. When he commands them, they stand. As the hymn writer Isaac Watts penned in 1715, quote, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day, 
The moon shines full at his command, and all the stars obey. So yes, on a deeper level, matter and energy, planets and stars, galaxies and black holes, everything in the cosmos is indeed obedient. Not to forces and laws, but to the voice of the one who created them and sustains them. In the opening chapter of Isaiah, God calls to the heavens and earth to listen to a most astounding thing, because God's own people do not listen to him. The non-living created order is more obedient to God's voice than we are. I think we can all relate. It's not a flattering portrait of our humanity. And of living things, according to what the Lord says through the prophet, oxen and donkeys seem to rank higher in their knowledge of their master than we do of God. An ox knows its owner, Isaiah proclaims, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. We all fall short of the glory of God. Modern science, then, cannot help but borrow from the biblical concept of laws and obedience when speaking of the universe. But what seems like empirical science is really much more metaphysical and speculative. How exactly do stars and planets obey laws? And do laws have some kind of intrinsic power? What do secular scientists mean by this? Mathematical laws have no causal, creative, or sustaining power any more than the black ink squiggles we call words in a cookbook have the ability to make dinner for you. If God has nothing to do with the universe, then as Shakespeare noted earlier, the skeptical poet is going to have to take up his pen and fill in the gaps that he created with his unbelief. But when he does, he ends up sounding just like a theologian. It is precisely as Romans 1 says, quote, For what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from his workmanship, so that men are without excuse, end quote. So to sum it all up, what does this month's planetary alignment finally all mean? And what do we do about it? A short story. On October 11th of 1604, Johannes Kepler discovered the last supernova, an exploded star, seen in our Milky Way galaxy. Kepler spent the better part of a year studying the celestial wonder and ended up publishing De Nova Stella, or The New Star, with the rather profuse subtitle, a book full of astronomical, physical, metaphysical, meteorological, and astrological discussions, glorious and unusual. In those days, Kepler actually wrote astrological tracts for nobles and government officials, as it provided a means for some income. But Kepler scarcely believed that there was any actual merit to his own prognostications. 
Needless to say, he did think about the implications of the appearance of the new star in his book, De Nova Stella, and thought it best as a Christian to exhort his readers, quote, to examine their sins and repent, end quote. When we encounter such declarations of the glory of God, when the parables are explained for what they truly represent, there is no better response than repentance. So let us ask of God in this season of Lent that he turn and align us with his will, just as he so beauteously turns and aligns the planets to himself for his glory. As God turns the earth to face the sun, Lord Jesus, so too do we pray that you turn us again and cause thy face to shine on us, that we may be saved. <laughs>